irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I have offices physically in both Los Angeles and New Orleans. You can find me online through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. And that is the abbreviation for New Orleans Los Angeles Therapy. You can book sessions with me in person by phone, FaceTime, or Skype. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube through my site. And if you're interested in being a guest, please reach out to me through email. I'd love to hear your story and and see if, you know, we can tell your story on this show. And I would really appreciate anyone who wants to support my show through my Patreon campaign. It's patreon.com forward slash Lisa Tahir, my name. And there's also a link to that on my website, NOLA Therapy. So I am going to bring my guest on in just a few moments. I'm really happy to have with me today, author Brian Peyton Joyner. And in his former life, not so long ago, he was a corporate attorney for over 20 years. And he decided that he wanted to live more authentically. And today we're going to be talking about that, how he was able, like how this shift came about in his life. And what does it take to, to be able to do something like this, to transition from one to one career into a totally different career, both emotionally and financially. So he wrote a book that I just finished last night, and it's called The Wisdom of Stones. And I was telling Brian before coming on the show that I read it in three days voraciously. It is such a good read. It's about a character that um, realized during the course of becoming a Baptist minister, which was his dream when his mima, his his grandmother was diagnosed with cancer and he promised God that he would serve him and be a minister if he just kept her alive. And she she lived and he realized during the course of his life that he was gay. And so we're going to talk about the struggle of this character and and what it could be like to be gay and be in a community, a religious community that doesn't support that. I was telling Brian as well that that story parallels a bit of my own life, being in a conservative Christian church and realizing that I was gay and having to navigate um, reconciling those two things, really wanting to be of service to God and wanting to live as a lesbian in the world, you know, with a partner that loves me of the same sex. So I am going to bring on Brian. Welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much, Lisa. I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to speak to you. Where would you like to begin our interview about you and and your work? Well, why don't we just start with the really tough stuff and get that out of the way? Okay, let's do it. Uh, you talked about you talked about religion, and sort of before we came on, you were asking me if I was comfortable speaking about this in front of your audience, and I appreciate your sharing with them your story, and I thought I would be a little brave as well and talk to them a little bit about how I grew up and my upbringing and sort of where I got to the point I am today. 
We'd love to hear that. Yeah, please. You know, we talked about growing up in a conservative Christian background, and I can absolutely relate to that. I grew up Southern Baptist in upstate South Carolina, and obviously that played a huge role in my life. We went to church from the time I, you know, from the time I was born. I'm sure I was dedicated as a baby to church, and we were Mm -hmm. shown these videos when I was God, I must have been like five or six years old. We were showing videos of really graphic images of people in hell. Wow. And it was one of these things where as a five-year-old, I was so moved by this. I went to the pastor and I said, look, I, I need to be saved and I need to, you know, I, I don't feel like my, you know, <laughs> I want to go to hell. He was like, well, you're too young. And I, I, was, I was talking theology with the preacher at my church at five years old. And that was sort of the, wow. the, the time in my life when I realized that this was going to be a, a, a big deal for me. And I, I continued on. And when I started to hit puberty, I, I realized that I was different. I had different attractions from the other boys. And I also happened to go to a church for, for whatever reason, it seemed that the preacher almost never missed a Sunday where he wouldn't rail against sodomites, homosexuals, mm-hmm. gays. It was, I don't know if you got that, or maybe I was just, attuned to to listen for that but it, it, it seemed that was a common refrain in a lot of the services and that had a huge impact on me and i struggled and tried to pray away the gay and went went through life really just feeling you know like i i was there was something flawed about me and i wasn't a complete person yeah and that's one of the that's one of the the really tragic things i think a lot of kids these days get as a message from the church is that somehow you're broken Mm-hmm. And that's that's one of the the big messages that the sort of conversion therapy group tries to impose on them is that you're 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 flawed, you're broken. The path to wholeness, you know, is, is one of the things. And I think that's a really damaging message. So one of the reasons that I that I wrote this book, and one of the strong themes in this book is, you know, whatever side you come out on with regards to whether or not you can be gay and Christian or whether or not you can reconcile gay with, with faith and, you know, with sort of larger moral values. I think this notion that somehow people who have these feelings are broken and can be cured is, is just flat out wrong and it's dangerous. Yeah. You know, in, in your book and for our listeners in the wisdom of stones, I think you articulated this theme really well throughout the book as far as, and it got me to think as well, looking back to when I went to meet with my pastor and such, like realizing I'm gay. And, you know, I hear, like you said, these hellfire and brimstone messages and like, this is just incompatible. Like you're, you're not this way. You weren't born this way. Like like there's something wrong. You're broken as you were just saying. And, and just that, um, you know, placing, like feeling like something's wrong with you is just a terrible way to live and feeling like you have to look outside of yourself. Also, it can be so disconcerting and disorienting and you articulate it really well in the character's struggle and and belief, you know, in his mentor as well, you know, to guide him and lead him. And it turns out this mentor had a, a lot of flaws, you know, that the character finally, right. you know, learned. And that was pretty heartbreaking, too, that sometimes ones that we look up to are not are flawed and not dealing with it, you know, but trying to get everyone else to fix themselves, so to speak. Right. Right. So how did so you reconcile? Def- yeah. In, in, in your own well, experience. You know, it's, it's ironic because in the book, I would say the the main, you know, he's he's not a villain because he sort of operates out of a place where he really thinks he's doing the right thing for the main character. 
He really right. feels that it's his goal and it's his mission, and he's doing this out of a place of love to try and help the main character, Ben, with these same-sex attractions. But for me, really, what happened was I was at the same place as Ben in the novel. I was between my junior year and my senior year in college, and I was sort of almost at the breaking point where, you know, I, I think I went to a very dark place in my life. And I went to the chaplain at the school that I went to, which is a liberal arts college in South Carolina. The school okay. in the book is somewhat patterned on that. And I went to the chaplain and the chaplain at this Baptist school said, well, hold on. You know, you don't need to be cured of this. This is something that is perfectly acceptable, legitimate feelings that God has given you that you're born with. And that, you know, after I picked up the pieces of my brain, which had exploded all over his office, I was like, what? And he actually yeah. had, he actually had a lot of uh, books that he'd ordered that were in our school library on the topic of being gay and Christian. And he you know, wrote them down. I, I went to the library and this was back in the days before computers really and looking in the card catalog and went and found the books. And I was, too, I was too afraid to check them out. So right. I remember finding the, the deepest, darkest place in the whole library and hold up there with this, with these books that, that I read with, with another book in front of it in case someone were to you know, happen to find me in the bowels of the library. And I, and I read these books very quickly and, and just sort of had my eyes opened to what the Bible really says about, uh, you know, homosexuality and then what God and Jesus say and what, what religion uh, says about this topic in general. So and it sounds like that transformed my life. And then I was able to move on. To move from a place of fear to into a place of love of yourself and of God and of others and who you are. Is, is what I hear right. you saying, but that it started right. from a, a shame-based place, you know, hiding, reading that material, even like the, like the character Ben is hiding, reading, you know, magazines that have guys in it, you know, like just that shame-based identity is so damaging and so devastating to one's self-esteem and ability then to create in, in one's world. So I love that you were able to find material to help you shift from fear to love of yourself. Yeah, and I, I think it's very important work that we all have to do, whether we're gay, straight, or whatever, is we all have things in our lives where we, we're ashamed of something that we've done, something that we are, something that someone's told us. And it, it's really grappling with that and sort of not necessarily trying to, to overcome that particular you know, character trait or whatever, but it's, it's sort of acknowledging and living with that feeling and, and accepting who you are that allows you really to overcome that, you know, sense of shame. And that's, that's what I was able to do. Uh, and I'm sure you probably get in your, in your clinical practice that you get a lot of patients who come to you with sort of these same feelings and just sort of helping them to accept who they are and not recognizing that they have to change or be cured was really the, that, that was a critical point. And at that point I was able to kind of really just have a huge leap forward in my life. Yes. That's beautiful. And, you know, like I've never spoken about this. This is my first time talking about 
this topic and my own coming out ever. So I feel a little nervous too, but your book, (laughs) when it got sent to me, I didn't realize that's what it's about. And I was like, okay, Lisa, this is an opportunity. You know, I feel like it helps me continue to heal from that time, being a part of that church that was loving and helped me in so many ways. But when it came to this issue, some of the things I was told, you know, were very damaging. Um, You know, and and it, it, so it took a number of years for me to reconcile that God does love me being gay and it is okay to love a woman and have a partnership with a woman, you know, even though there's still people from that church that don't still would tell me I'm going to hell, you know, like those things, it's just damaging right. to, to tell people, right. you know, and there's a good quote in the book, in your book somewhere about, um, the character Ben was just such a good orator, you know, like, Hey, you know, we'll all be judged, you know, but that's God's doing. Like, we don't need to do that to each other. That's my paraphrase. It was such a beautiful phrase in your book. Really well-written. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate you talking about this as well. Cause I'm sure someone listening is experiencing questions around their sexuality and even the morality of it, the acceptance of it. So I hope that we're speaking to someone to to know that it's okay to be who you are. And like Ben says, to live in the book, live life by one's own rules and be your, right. authentic, was, your authentic self. Yeah, that, that thread of live life by your own rules was something that I found as part of the hobo code. And we'll, we'll kind of steer off of this topic because it's been pretty heavy. Yeah, let's go ahead, yeah. For the, for the first part. And I, I did a lot of research into hobos for the book because the grandpa character it was sort of based on my grandfather in real life. He was, he was a hobo and got kicked out of his house in Great Depression and rode the rails. I, I didn't really know that much about that particular period of time in our nation's history and, and about that particular group of people. But yes. hobos were, were not sort of what we think of when we think of like bombs or, you know, people who would just kind of go from town to town for handouts. They were actually sort of they considered worked. themselves... Yeah, they did. They considered themselves members of the crew on these trains and they would go and they would try. They were the first really itinerant workers and they would go and they would basically offer to do work for someone in exchange for a, a meal. And they they were had a very strong sense of ethics and they had a they have a meeting every year in Iowa. And one of the things that they did way back was come up with sort of a hobo code of ethics. And the first rule of the hobo code of ethics is to live life by your own rules. Don't let another person rule you. Mm. So when I came across that, I think, wow, what a cool theme for the book. And that sort of ties back in, even with what I was taught sort of in church. And I'd say, before we got into the, you know, you're not supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that. The 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 basis for the, the Baptist faith back in the day was, the priesthood of the believer, this concept that each individual has the right to decide what is right and what is wrong. Right. You know, you have the right to do that for yourself. And I sort of yes. latched on to that. And, and that really has guided my life more than anything. And then I sort of em- embody that in the hobo code and that notion of living life by your own rules. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have any principles and doesn't mean you don't have a moral code. But it does mean that you're saying if we go back to this notion of living your life as your authentic self, no one can tell you who your authentic self is and you have to discover that for yourself. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of only when we embrace that are we able to really accept the person that we are and, and live our life and be truly happy, I think. I think so, too. 
the character of your grandfather in the book was such a beautiful character. Your grandfather sounds like such a beautiful man. Just I was laughing at portions. Can you speak to us about your grandparents and what role they played in your life and and in this book? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, the the grandfather in the book is definitely inspired by my grandfather. I would never say that it's, you know, true events or that it's based in fact, but my grandfather definitely, my mother's father definitely inspired this grandpa character. Uh, When I was a kid, we used to go over to my, you know, their house every day on Sunday and they, my grandma took a huge, huge meal and my mom would be there and she has seven brothers and sisters and a lot of them would go over there and so be a, a lot of people having dinner and just spending time with the family. And then after dinner, grandpa would go into his chair kind of mm. climb back and we'd sort of sit in the living room there. And, we, you know, we had this before iPads and all the stuff like that, obviously. We didn't right. watch TV because there's really nothing on on a Sunday at that time other than, you know, you didn't have cable really, but, or they didn't. And he would tell us stories about his life. And they were incredibly fascinating. And it, it it's, it's one of those things where I, I think today people really look down on elders in our society, which mm. is really different from a lot of cultures because a lot of cultures revere elders and they look at them for the wisdom. And these, these are people who have lived a very long time and they know a lot about our parents and they know a lot about the world. And there's a lot of knowledge to be gained from our grandparents. And so the, the character in the book was sort of based on the, my grandfather, who also had an incredible sense of humor and was, was really one of the kindest people that you'd ever meet. And I tried yes. to, to, to honor the my grandfather in in the book and i dedicated the book to him uh, you did honor him so well hello yes i'm still here no i didn't mean to cut you off i'm just thinking you did honor him so well thank you in your book yeah and did your grandfather trade you a stone for a story like like in the book was that something you and you and shared I kind of wish that had been the case, but I came up with this idea when I was at a writing group in San Diego back when I first started writing, got really serious about it in 2010. I joined a group called San Diego Writers Inc. INK. It's pretty clever. And we would meet on Tuesdays during lunchtime. We'd get a writing prompt, it'd be maybe 10 or 15 people, and you'd write free writing for maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, depending on how many people were there. The prompt that I got that day was to write about a collection. And just for whatever reason popped into my mind, the story about a six-year-old boy who was on his grandparents' property and he'd go down by the creek and he would find stones and he would take those stones and give them to his grandpa who collected them. And then his grandfather would tell him a story. So he had this barter system of a stone for a story. And yes. that, that plot device became something that I... I became kind of obsessed with. I think as a writer, when you get an idea that you think is a good idea, you just, you really just fixate on it. And I kept thinking over and over again, like, wow, that's such a neat idea for a story. Cause I would tell it to somebody and they would sort of think for a minute, well, God, that sounds, no, I guess that's not a new story. When you tell someone a story and they think it's already exists or it's already out there, you know, you've got a good idea. Exactly. So I came up with, yeah, I came up with that. And I was also working on sort of the memoir story about my life growing up. And I have always thought that a good parallel to same-sex relationships was interracial relationships. And a lot of the same rhetoric 
from the Bible and from the harms that will befall society and marriage in general that are used against gay couples were used against interracial couples back in the you know, 50s and 60s, especially before the Levin yeah. Supreme Court case. And I wanted to parallel that and just sort of show the the reader, hey, look, you know, we had all these same arguments way back when, and, and look where we are today on, uh, you know, being able to accept couples of different races. Is there is there a possibility that these that these two different types of you know, these two relationships or same sex relationships may somehow be just as valid as interracial relationships, even though we treat them, you know, as verboten the same way that we did interracial relationships back a long time ago. And so this is another thing I was, you know, I hope I don't hit people over the head with my message with the hammer in the book. But um, I think the story sort of speaks for itself in terms of the stories that Grandpa tells about the love of his life that he had in the 1930s and the way that they sort of had to sneak around even to go on a date. Um, yes. And then sort of how the things ended. You know, I wondered if, if anyone's ever given you the feedback that, that I'm about to share reading your book and reading about the Ben's grandfather, the character who was Ben's grandfather, and how just he was such a colorful, colorful character to our readers, and he made moonshine and would sell it. And I wondered, my grandfather grew up in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and used to run moonshine with my grandmother's father, <laughs> and that was never learned. My grandmother, Mimi, they're both deceased now, never knew that until pretty, you know, right around her death when we went back to Eureka Springs and went to the house, and there were these big, like, rings on the wooden floor, and that's where the moonshine barrels were that my oh, pop wow. and her father, you know, so Mimi was like horrified, you know, to learn that this happened, you know, back in the twenties. So has, you know, in your book, it's set back in that same time period as well. Have you right. gotten feedback about readers that have read your book and reflected on their own upbringing and stories between them and their grandparents, for example, because it brought up so many beautiful memories for me. Well, that's, that's, that's great feedback. I haven't gotten that yet from folks. Uh, I think because uh, you know, people that have read it in my kind of reading groups and things like that probably, you know, they may have had that same sort of relationship or history with their, with their grandparents. Um, but mm -hmm. I, that's great feedback. I, I hope I hear a lot of stories like that. That'll be very interesting. Um, Good. And the other story going on in your book is, is the grandfather, Ben's grandfather, you know, being committed with Mima. Was it like 50 years they were married? Before she yeah. passed away. And then previous right. to her, the relationship, the love of his life like was with a black woman that he right. could not, you know, they couldn't be together. And they ended up reconnecting in the nursing home. I started crying because I'm like, this is so <laughs> beautiful. Like, so this theme of interracial relationships and, and the secretiveness and the shame around it, you know, can you speak some about this theme in, in your book and how? Because I, I think, again, it was so well written. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, definitely. It, it, you know, one of the, the, in Grandpa's story and his relationship back with Ruby J, who was the woman's name that he was in, in love with in the 30s, they couldn't sit together in a restaurant, you know, because blacks weren't allowed to eat inside. So they would sit at a table. You know, he would sit at the table inside at the window. She would sit at the table outside of the window and sort of pretend like they were having lunch together at the mm. ball game where they would go and they could watch either the black team or the white team play. They would sit beside each other in the stands, but there was a rope that separated the, what was called the colored section from the white section. Uh, they went to a movie theater one time and 
you know, the, the whites and blacks couldn't sit together in a movie theater. They had to sit in different sections. And because Ruby J happened to be very light skinned, she was able to just put a scarf over her head and they were actually able to go to a movie together. And that was sort of their act of protest and defiance in, in the midst of all of what was going on in the South in the 30s. And that was something that they, they, they felt so proud of themselves and were really happy that they'd sort of gotten away with that. And they got ahead of themselves and decided to go have a meal afterwards and went to this diner. And they were sitting there and the waitress comes up. And at that particular point in time, when Ruby J decides she's going to take off her scarf and the waitress sees that her hair is a little bit kinkier than she, she would have expected. And they go over and get the manager and the manager basically kicks them out of the restaurant mm-hmm. and says a very nasty thing. And grandpa just walks out. He doesn't stand up for her. He just sort of scurries out of the restaurant. It doesn't even wait for her to go with him. And that, and then something that, that happens later is, is something where grandpa back in the thirties, you know, he buckled under societal pressure and, you know, wasn't, it wasn't living his authentic self and being with who he loved. And in fact, was sort of asking Ruby J to be someone she wasn't as a result of that. Right. And I think that that very much parallels what a lot of people live with in the LGBT community today, where, you know, you may, you may take your, your partner, significant other to, you know, say you were to go to your parents' house and they might say, well, we're not comfortable with you two sleeping in the same room or just introduce this person as your friend. If we're out, yes. if we run into somebody and I, I, I face the same thing. Like when we go and my husband and I are very much accepted by my immediate family and my nieces and nephew absolutely love us. And we go places with them. But a lot of times we'll be in my small town hometown in South Carolina and we'll run into people that I might've known from high school or maybe that my family knows they'll introduce me. Hey, you know, you remember my son, Brian, and then this is his, this is, this is LJ. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. they, they lose the ability to sort of come up with that, that all important word, husband, you know, boyfriend, whatever that identifies. Okay. Cause there's so much wrapped up in that. And, and yeah. it's something where I think for a lot of times that they, it's just maybe easier for them to just keep it under the rug and probably people know, Oh, okay. Well, this is his friend and he's, you know, 46 years old and he's bringing his friend with him on trips. They, they could, most people can do the math. This something that even to this day, people hide. Yeah. So the, I, I really tried to draw some strong parallels with what grandpa went through in his stories and how, you know, how, how they were treated. And, you know, so to, to the extent that, you know, he was, he, they go on a date and they have to go to some really, really secluded place in the middle of nowhere and have a picnic and, and still be worried that somebody yeah, yeah rustling in the bushes like who yeah, is that rustling in the bushes and they're afraid that somebody's going to be there and it's, it's it's those sorts of things that you look you you can look back at a black white couple and what they had to go through and you're saying wow that's just so unbelievable that's ridiculous yeah. that it's hard to imagine that that was america that was our country yes but then 2017 gay couples are going through exactly the same thing with regards to their partners. Um, I, I went to a gay Christian network conference in January and spoke okay. and I had some folks from Tennessee from a small college in Tennessee came up and one of the women was saying that she went to a sushi place 
And I, and I mentioned sushi because you think, well, it's a sushi place. Okay, it's in Tennessee, but a sushi place, people should be progressive. Sushi eaters are progressive in their values, right? <laughs> but they were, right. she was with her girlfriend. She was with her girlfriend at a, at a Japanese restaurant and someone came up to them and said, I just don't think you two are, are right or said something very derogatory towards them just out of the blue. Just you're having a nice dinner and someone you don't even know feels the need to come up to you and make a comment on your right. relationship. And that happened, yeah. just, you know, within the last year. Wow. So that sort of yeah. stuff. And I think living in California, we probably don't realize as much how, how this happens. How and, other parts you know, of the country a, are. Right. And, and, and really, I, I have high hopes for the message and the wisdom of stones. And I, w- I would love for it to be sort of the Uncle Tom's Cabin, Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, that it just raises awareness of the issue of, you know, being gay and, you know, how that impacts people and what that means relative to being Christian and where people can just sort of get to the point and recognize that, you know, regardless of whether or not, and the character doesn't necessarily get to the point where he says, okay, yeah, I can do, I can, I can be gay and I can have a relationship and I can be Christian as well, but at least he gets to the point where he's like, I'm, I'm okay. And this is the way God made me and I don't need to be cured. And I would feel very happy if we could get to that point in our country where somehow being gay is not some super sin, which is sort of what I feel like we've elevated it to that. You know, I think the, the Christian church has pushed a lot more people away than it's really helped, um, you know, by somehow elevating this particular thing that, you know, it's an important part of our lives, but it's obviously not the entire person. But somehow they've made that be something that is, if, if you're gay, then you're just excluded from the community. And, and that's one thing I'd like to, to change. In this so by, by writing this book, and did you intend, Brian, when you wrote this book, as far as the takeaways for readers, did that kind of evolve as the story developed? What it Absolutely. is that you'd like readers to take away? Because it right. got really deep and profound. Can you speak a little Absolutely. to that process? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it generically. You know, a lot of, I, I read a study that said 80, 81% of people want to write a book, which I, which I think is pretty, it just shows there's a lot of crazy people. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people want to write a book. They think they have, have a story that's really interesting. And I, I, I think if, if you're disciplined, if you sit down, if you make time to write, and just block it out your schedule. You can, you can write probably, if you're really focused, you can write enough words for it to be a book. And that'd be about maybe 80 to 100,000 words. But taking that book and making it into a novel is where I think the real challenge uh, arises. And that's, that's what took me probably the longest period of time because I wrote the, the book, the 90,000 words, over a three-month period in 2010. But okay. it took me a, a, a much longer period after that of, of sending it out, having people read, have people comment on it before I got to the point, it's like, okay, well, let me take these words and make it into a novel that has this sort of story arc that, that gets to the point. And what, what really, and, and to answer, to answer your question on, you know, how did, how did I get to this sort of really deep point at the end of the book was it was out of, at a lot of people reading it and commenting on it and, the initial ending, even as late as last year, you know, after probably three or four really substantive drafts, people, the content editors that read it just hated the ending. And mm. I, what I came to sort of to realize was that I was having an ending for Ben 
that just wasn't authentic for him, that wasn't sort of the person that I had built him up over this entire book to be. And a lot of that really had to do with sort of the life that I was living at that particular point in time. I, you, know, you mentioned that I was a corporate lawyer for 20 years. Yes. And that was a job that I, I liked, but as, as things got really, you know, as, as things kind of advanced to my job, I, I think I realized more and more that wasn't my true calling. That wasn't what I was put on this earth to do. That's not what I wanted to do. And I was writing this novel all about being our authentic self. And I had these great grandpa stories that were really pushing the main character to be his authentic self. And I came to the point where during one of the editing processes, I just read grandpa stories alone by themselves. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that, wow, this, these stories are pushing me in my personal life to recognize that I, ca I can't continue on doing this job as an attorney. Uh -huh. it's, it's literally like a piece of my soul is just getting eaten up and I'm leaving it there at the office every day. And I, I'm very unsatisfied. And, and that was really what was keeping me from, from finishing the book and, and making the book mm. the best book that it could be because I would, had become so intertwined with Ben and his struggles and what he was going through. And I was sort of going through a similar thing about being my authentic self in my real life that I was shackling myself and shackling Ben. And when I said, okay, let me, let me address the problems in my own life. Let me take grandpa's stories to heart in my personal life. What change do I need to make? And I realized I need to figure out a way where I could leave that particular career and then move on to a career as a writer because it was what I was passionate about. And that yes. was the point where when I said, look, let me figure out how I can move on and be someone different in my life. That was the point where the novel just crystallized and the ending came to me and I started writing with a passion that I really hadn't had up to that point. And the story just sort of morphed into this ending that I, I hope people, you know, it may not be the ending that people want, but I think it's the ending that the book needed. And it, it was, it, yes. It, yeah. And it, and it, and it, and it sort of was reflected then in my life where I, I, I said, okay, let me set a date. And, and I, this was in January of 2016. I said, okay, arbitrary date, but it, it's symbolic. July 4th, 2016, I will have resolved my work situation and I will, that will be my independence day. And I talked with I my husband it. and we figured out a plan. You know, it wasn't like I went in the next day and quit, but we figured out right. a plan and said, Hey, what can we do so that I can pursue what I'm passionate about? And, he was all on board with it because he knew that I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. And he wanted me to live the authentic life and be the person that I was supposed to be. So he was, he was fully supportive. And in fact, a couple months ago, I got a great opportunity to go back and be a lawyer. I mean, really almost the dream job. If I were, you know, probably a year ago looking and saying, well, what would be the job that I could sort of create from scratch or two years ago, I guess create and say, this would be the dream job that somehow became available and I was going to talk to the person and he's like, look, even, even if this is the job for you, they offer you all this money. I don't want you to take this job mm -hmm. because everything that we're doing, I believe in you. I have faith. You're on your right path and yeah. you shouldn't deviate from that. And that's, that's when you know you've won the relationship lottery. <laughs> I mean, totally, you have. When you have that person that, that, that makes you the person you are supposed to be, makes you a better you. And wants to see you get there and support you in that. Right. 
Yeah, I'm hearing the themes of, of evolution as you've been talking, and I'm constructing a timeline in my head that you're writing this book in 2010 while you were still a corporate attorney. And I, I also listened to an interview with you that was on the news on your website, brianpaytonjoiner.com. And um, you spoke about over the years of being an attorney, which I know you, you loved at first. It started to feel like you're leaving a piece of your soul there. And writing started right. to feel more of a connection and passing. So your evolution, you know, you changed. Your partner supported you. And, and the belief started to grow that you could actually – live as an author. And then it sounds like this dream opportunity to be an attorney in a way that suits your evolution and growth also presented. Would that be accurate? Right. Right. And that was, that was a job that I had to turn down because it, you know, it wasn't something that even though it would have been the perfect attorney job, it just wasn't where I wanted to go in my next step. That was sort of like the, the fate tempting me and saying, are you sure, you know, that you're making the right decision? I said, no, I'm, I'm absolutely, I've, making the right decision. And it's hard, you know, it's, even when you do something you love, it's, it's still challenging. You know, I wake up every day and love what I do, but mm-hmm. it's hard, you know, being people, people joke that, Oh, how's retirement? And I, I probably get a little offended by that because I feel yeah. like I'm probably working harder more than I ever have before. Cause if, if you're a writer in this day and age, you're really an entrepreneur and you're, you're developing your product, you're marketing it, you're doing PR, you have to do everything for yourself like a one-man shop yeah there's a lot going on it's just it's exercising a different muscle that's i think not as well known as say saying you're a corporate attorney and and what a powerful place to be in brian that you were able to say no to that job that you had the confidence and belief you know knowing that this is how you're you're going to live from now on as an author and writer right right yeah it's it's you know scary fun (laughs) You know, I'm I'm thinking too. I'm I'm wondering what your family thought of this transition. Well, since they've been a theme I, 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 in the book and such. Yeah, it's it's not anything that my parents. They were very happy that I was a successful corporate lawyer. They were okay. not very happy because they didn't really see writing as a career. Mm-hmm. And I, this was reinforced, you know, for me from when I was in high school. I've, I've written short stories since the time I was like six years old when I wrote this story about two shoes that fell in love. They were two left shoes and they fell in love and they wanted to be together. But the world said, you know, you, you, left shoes can only be with right shoes. So the left shoes ended up defying the world and they ended up getting married. And then after a couple of years, they had kids. And that was my... That was my first bad pun I think I ever wrote. And, you know, there's a lot of bad puns probably in the Wisdom of Stones, but I took out a lot of them. But I, I, I won't guarantee there aren't a lot still in there. Uh, but that, yeah, was, a- that was sort of my first thing in writing. And then I, I'll, just, I'll just sort of finish this point quickly. And then when I was yeah. in 10th uh, grade, I was given the opportunity to participate in a, a scholarship, like a summer program uh, in this college near us and do a creative writing program. And I just, you know, my parents were like, well, you know, why, why would you spend your summer doing that? And it's not like that's a career. And that was really reinforced for me sort of my entire life was, well, writing is not really a career. And so I never, in fact, I went to the doctor a couple months ago and he was asking me, oh, what's your career? And I said, writer. And he was looking on his drop down menu and it wasn't even listed on there. That's interesting. It was like, uh, <laughs> it was like waiter, uh, woodworker, winemaker, uh, zoologist. 
No writer. So I'm like, uh, no writer, no author, no novelist. <laughs> so even then, I was like, okay, <laughs> the doctor's telling me I don't have a, a career. Wow. But, you know. The story you just shared about the, the two left shoes, there's so much metaphor in that story as well. Like the themes that you have been addressing since you were young, I think, have to do with, you know, the experience as this book addresses with the LGBT community. And, you know, like saying that two, you know, people can't fit together, society saying that. And you have, have written in many different ways that, yes, we can. Right. Going back to when you wrote that story about the two left shoes. Right. Yeah, my, my mom, had, you know, how good mothers do, they keep all your stuff like that. And they, she sent me this, uh, this thing. And I don't know where she pulls these things out of, but she seems to have this collection of my writings that she'll send me at different times. And she sent me something recently that was my high school valedictorian graduation speech that I wrote as sort of a joke. Because okay. we, had to, we had to write on, the, the theme was knowledge. It's the principal thing. This is a book from the Bible. So this is my public high school, you know, doing a, a, a Bible verse as their theme for the graduation. I could write about yes. knowledge is the principal thing. Therefore, get knowledge and with all thy uh, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, with all thy getting, get more wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and so I had changed that to, and I wrote this joke speech that we had to, because we had a try, we had a run through. And I, I wrote, wrote the speech on money is the principal thing. Therefore, get money, and with all that getting, get more money. This, is, this, was, ni- this was 1988, and I had a line okay. in there about Trump, Donald Trump, who was really big yeah. in the New York real estate market at the time, about how, you know, you don't see Trump worrying about what's going on in the world. I mean, he's all, all he cares about is money. So my, mother, mm-hmm. my mother, who's not a big supporter of Trump, sent me that recently, and she said, oh, you know, look what you predicted way back when. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah. Um, Brent, what what are you working on now? Do you see another book, or what is the focus of your projects and energy at this moment? Now that this book is out, yeah. So as yeah, so as, as soon as we're done, I'm going to work on a couple of chapters of a new book that I am working on, which is going to be called Letters from the Dust, and it's about an Amerasian kid. It's a little bit based on uh, my dad is a Vietnam veteran, and recently he started to have some very serious panic attacks and post-traumatic stress disorder from his time there. Okay. And so I, I started to wanted to write a story sort of based on some things he's going through, but the way that the story's morphed into in the, in the work that I've done with my writing coach is it's about an Amerasian, so half Vietnamese, half American uh, man who was adopted by an American family and he has his half brother who's gay uh, they sort of became estranged because the Amerasian kid decided to follow in the adoptive father's footsteps and become a pastor. Well, he sort of realizes that his birth mother may still be alive. And so the father, the Amerasian kid, and then the, the, his half-brother, they all travel to Vietnam to try and find his birth mother. And then sort of through that, they, they really end up bonding together and they, they discover the true meaning of family become a oh, family beautiful. the three of them for the first time so that's that's what i'm working on next and then we also uh, as part of the kind of after the election i, I started working with a, i guess you had on your show at one time donna carol voss and she and i have worked yeah. on some yeah. some this this idea that we ought to be able to get together to regardless of what side we're on and discuss politics and discuss issues and so we had this this thing called don't unfriend me and we decided 
to start discussing political issues coming up from very different points of view, but trying to figure out how can we talk about things and still remain civil and still be friends. Oh, that's fantastic. When we, when we picked the topic, we realized we don't, we're not even talking from the same set of facts. So the first thing that mm. we did was we went through and did a really what we call a deep dive into the first one we, we did on Sanctuary Cities. It's available on Amazon, and it's called Deep Dive Sanctuary Cities, where we look at the entire history of sanctuary cities in the country. I look at all the legal issues. I, I wrote a fictional dilemma, which is sort of a city council trying to debate as to whether or not they should become a sanctuary city. And then we have some reading group discussion questions. We really get into the issues, and we hit it from a lot of different angles. Mm -hmm. And then I write an essay. She writes an essay, and we figure out, okay, after all this work, what, what can we come together and, and realize is the best path forward on this particular issue. So that's, that's something that's out now. The next one we're going to work on is religious liberties, which is a hot button issue going right. you know, obviously in our country. And, you know, to what, to what right should a business owner say, I bake wedding cakes except for gay weddings or right. you know, I, I want to be able to wear my hijab at my Abercrombie and Fitch job, even though they have a particular dress code. That's, that's what we're going to look at. I think it'll be really interesting. We have to get that book out in the next few months. So a lot of exciting things, just pursuing my passion, trying to make the world a better place. Uh, that's yeah, really. Donna Carol Voss was such a great guest. And, and, you know, she I think it takes both of you as you are, you know, different mindsets coming together to understand differences. And is this where it comes up? Um, what you had sent me something talking about, you're an advocate for agreeable disagreement. Uh, that theme is kind of popping up in my head as you're talking about right. deep dive sanctuary right. cities. Can you speak to us a little bit about that before we are yes, done? That, for today? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Lisa, thanks for giving the opportunity to talk about that. Yeah. So what sort of came about after the election was we, we realized that, you know, it's not like all of a sudden, in this country, we're not, you know, we're, we're, we're still all the same people living in this country. And the election, people got so bitter. And, and we sort of hoped that we could figure out a way that both sides could put aside all the nastiness and try and yes. come together and really talk about issues in a way that's grounded in facts and, and try to push to get to more core values. And that's one of the things that was really helpful in my discussion with Donna was, in the end, we sort of realized, well, I'm not a bad person. She realized I'm not a bad person. I realized she's not a bad person. Right. We just have maybe different values that we see as higher values. And maybe for her, it was more safety. And for me, it was more equity and fairness and social justice. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's really it's like, okay, well, if we, I don't disagree with her values. I just don't put them as highly in my ranking as, you know, I do maybe different things. But you know, it doesn't mean that she's a bad person and is evil. And I think that's the problem is we we sort of have vilified the other side exactly and everything and it's and, and get it's, so emotionally charged about it and you lose objectivity right. and intelligence i think when you go about right. things in that manner <clears throat> right and, it, and and it's getting to the point where people were like cuz that's what we called our 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 thing don't unfriend me because it was getting yeah, to I'd the point that. where someone would see something and be like well i'm, I'm just not going to be friends with that person because i don't agree with them politically and i think that 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 sort of putting yourself more and more in your own echo chamber where you only hear your same ideas and probably the search engines and Facebook is responsible for making that even worse today where you, you're only, you're only going to get things that you've clicked on. You're only going to get things that you liked. And it used to be you pick up a newspaper and there'd be more balanced coverage. Whereas now I might read the Huffington Post, someone else might read Fox News. And 
we're going to get really only things that sort of speak to our particular beliefs and, and you don't get that kind of balanced view. And so we're trying to sort of push past that and get people to talk to people who have different beliefs from them and understand why do you believe that? Not that, let me tell you why I'm wrong, but listening to the other side. And that's what for us yes. we realized was the greatest value. I love that you were both able to do that, to push beyond one's own perceptions to, to hear the other and then be a model of that. That's so great. Well, yeah, don't get me wrong. We didn't do it all the time. A lot of times we got into major sort of arguments and we <laughs> walked away probably, you know, hating each other, not ever wanting to speak again. But we came back and said, no, we have to push beyond this and figure out how we can still be friends and how we can still talk. And, and that committing to that was made a huge difference. Yeah. So, Brian, how can listeners reach you if they and, and get your book, The Wisdom of Stones? I think The Wisdom of Stones is available online anywhere you buy books. So Amazon, IndieBound, uh, Barnes & Noble. I'll be in San Diego uh, this month on June 17th at the Barnes & Noble for a book signing at 3 p.m. If people want to reach me, they can do so on my website at brianpaytonjoiner.com. You can just send a contact, email, whatever. And I'd be happy to talk to any book groups if anybody might want to consider this as a, as a book group. Uh, book choice oh, read. I have reading group discussion questions that are available to get into some of the issues and, and a lot more than what we had time to talk about today. Wonderful. And this show will be on iTunes, uh, Google Play, YouTube, and I'll send you a link later for your materials. You. I just really appreciate you taking your time today to be my guest hey, and speak to the listening audience. Hey, thanks so much, Lisa. And I appreciate your opening up about sort of your own path. I think that's very courageous. And I hope that maybe, you know, if, if we've gotten one person out there sort of to take a look at his or her life and realize that maybe, you know, if they can be the person that they're supposed to be, then, I, then I'll, I'll feel very happy about our talk today. Me too. And thank you as well for being so transparent. Thanks, Lisa. Have a great day. You're one. welcome. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That concludes our show for today. Join me next week as I bring you another interview with a guest. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir.